You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your one-stop shop of cutting-edge, conservative, independent thought here at the conservative conscience. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house on Friday. And I know it's been a short week for us here, but I'm telling you, I am so tired from this vacation that I need a vacation from the vacation. I'm just so disoriented. But good to be back with you guys today on this Friday, February 8th, which actually is our anniversary itself, our 10th anniversary, my lovely wife, um, the crown jewel of my life. So uh, today is the special day itself. We took the vacation a couple of days before the actual anniversary. But, um, you know, I have to make sure every year <laughs> I had this problem last year where it's in the middle of the winter and it's it's cold. So when I deliver flowers to the house, if my wife is not home then, let's say she happens to be out for two hours um, running errands or whatever, and then the flowers sit there in the cold weather, they totally get killed. So this year I had to make sure I ordered it at a time I knew she'd be home. But uh, anyway, February 8th, special day for, for me here. And, you know... Obviously, today, I'm just still out of sorts. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it was being on that boat for such a long period of time. I almost feel like the boat manifestation of vertigo, rather than your head spinning side to side, it's up and down, like the bobbing. I still feel that motion. Um, Just in general, I'm really tired traveling. Even you know, a three-hour plane ride just knocks me out. The whole... The whole thing, the drive, the boat, the traveling, it was well worth it. But I don't know how people ever get used to traveling their whole life. My dad is, you know, going on 69 and he still travels for work almost every week. Gosh, I don't know how he, how he does it. The, the way I'm able to stay on top of everything and just be so forceful is because I'm just at my station. I don't move, monitoring everything. I would I would be so out of it, so off kilter if I had to travel. So I'm I'm really thankful that I barely travel for my job. But anyway, lots to tie up, a lot of loose ends to go over today, uh, from yesterday, from the time we missed. Looking forward to next week as well. As you know, next week is going to be another decision week, with Friday being the deadline for funding. Uh, for the not just DHS, but the agencies that were shut down last time that are not currently under the full annual appropriations. And I'm telling you, folks, it's not looking good. Forget about funding for the wall. That was a no-brainer that Republicans had no intention of fighting again. I mean, McConnell has made that very clear that they will fund whatever Democrats want to fund or not fund, and there will be no government shutdown, even though we have the ultimate government shutdown at our border, but they don't care about that. We have the ultimate government shutdown in the courts, but they don't care about that. 
Instead, it's all about whatever the Democrats want. Now, you'll say, well, Trump could veto it. <laughs> I got news for you. He's going to sign whatever they throw at him this time. Um, so that is really bad news because what what I'm hearing first, and, and, and I know a lot of you are waiting to hear my take on the courts, on John Roberts, what he did last night. We have an article out today. We're going to get to that. Just to tie up some loose ends on immigration, the border fight, so we're prepared for next week, you really need to call the White House. Flood them with comments. I don't even know if I'd bother with Congress anymore at this point. But call the White House. Because I will tell you that if they don't make a veto threat, we are in big trouble. Now, either a veto threat or he needs to follow through with executive action. We're going to go over again what that should look like. But remember... We gave a three-part plan, and I'm going to link to it in show notes so you guys remember. We laid down that marker, a comprehensive plan for Trump to, to, to get off the ground on this. It was messaging. It was forcing Democrats to take tough votes in the Senate, and it was ultimately a series of executive actions. Right now, if I'm a Democrat, I don't fear that too much. I'm not seeing him take those actions. And certainly one of them was to threaten to get rid of DACA, which he's certainly not doing. In fact, once again, he called for its permanent extension or de facto permanent extension. Three years, he says, but it's de facto permanent in his State of the Union address. So this is not looking good. And I'm telling you, the White House needs to know that um, we're on top of them. So if I were you, I'd call 202-456-6213. That's the number to leave comments. And just say, this is the end of the line, Mr. President. you got to veto a bill that doesn't fund your priorities for the border. Why am I talking about this now? Well, it's coming up next week. we got to be prepared. There's two pieces of disturbing news that we hear coming out of this super-duper committee. So if you remember, they created a committee of rhinos and Democrats to work out the final you know, fiscal year 2019 DHS appropriations and, and, and work out the disagreements. Now, you know what happens when you get Democrats and Republicans in, in, in a room. They both agree to do liberal things, and they split the difference. So whenever you fear that Republicans are about to screw us and cave and and throw away the ball, well, you're actually wrong because they toss an interception. They don't just throw away the ball. They go backwards. So this audience is more informed now on this issue than anyone else because you've heard from me. You've heard from all sorts of border experts and law enforcement from all different states and backgrounds, you now understand that the policies are so much more important than funding for the border wall. Because, you know, it's, it's like saying, I take my arm and just, you know, decide to be a masochist and, and rub, my, rub up against something sharp and cut myself. 
and then we talk about putting a Band-Aid on. If I had to ask you what's more important, the Band-Aid or the cutting, well, it's, it's not the Band-Aid, it's the cutting. I mean, just stop cutting yourself. You know, we could talk about you know, there's utility to putting the Band-Aid on now, but the main thing is to stop the cutting. So what they're going to do is it's not just not put the Band-Aid on, a.k.a. build the wall. They're actually going to aggravate the policies causing the migration. The, the goal here is not necessarily the wall. Again, that's a long-term thing, maybe for the future. For now, it's to stop the invasion. Now, if you have a wall, it makes the invasion slower, less potent. Certainly, the criminal activity from the cartels, it deters it. Even though, as far as a lot of the migrants themselves, they'll come over the wall. And the cartels will help them, but at least those who don't want to meet a border agent and they have to sneak in, it's going to be harder for them. But never forget, you know, a lot of people like to say, okay, there's the migrants and then there's the really bad actors that the cartels bring in. And that is true, but it's not a perfect delineation there, a perfect line of demarcation, because I will tell you, plenty of these so-called hapless migrants are very problematic in their own right. Many of them, certainly the teenagers, are what's fueling MS-13 and the drug crisis. But even a lot of these family units, I will tell you, my sources tell me right now that in Houston, there are major stash houses Stash houses used to be, you know, when you refer to stash house, you you refer to a drug house. Now it's human trafficking houses. And all these people that they're releasing, all these family units that they're releasing into our country, disappearing without a trace, they're now going to this these stash houses in Houston, engaging in the criminal activity right when we release them, because Remember, a lot of the migrants don't have the five to ten thousand dollars up front to pay the cartels. So they have to pay it off afterwards on our soil. That's the thing. They have it's not just that the cartels have operational control over our border. They they have operatives inside our country. So now they make the these people report to the stash houses in Houston. To pay off their debt. And let me, let me tell you, paying off the debt is not just handing them a, some cash. For the women, it means the, the sex trade, slavery, or serving as drug mules. Not just to get across the border. In the interior of our country. That's a theme we played up yesterday. It's a theme in our article from yesterday. How once again we're forgetting that every community is a border town. Most of the migrants are not staying at the border counties. As problematic as, as they are in the border counties, like we talked about with Hidalgo, New Mexico. And we're going to talk about more next week. Have some more guests on the show. But I say this all to frame this issue in terms of it's all the asylum and the catch and release, that is the, 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 the linchpin of the problem. That we invite everyone to come and apply, no matter what. Hey, if you come from a third world country, and it's not just Central America, they're coming from all over. All over the world. 
CBP just put out today that they're catching people from India, China, Sri Lanka, all over the place. Any crap hole country, they're going to come from there to here if you invite them. That, that That's hundreds of millions of people are going to come. And then the second step is, not only does everyone have an opportunity to apply, but the, the linchpin here is the catch and release. See, if we tell you, look, you know, pending your claim, you're, you're going to be held in an ICE facility. Well, if you don't think you're going to have a legitimate claim, you're just not going to come. If we make it clear that you're, we're not going to do that. But instead, word has gotten out that we're a paper tiger, that the Trump administration has been a paper tiger. They're listening to all these court decisions. And, you know, we might think, oh, well, well, it's only in this case or only if you have this claim. But that doesn't matter. These people hear from all their relatives and all their friends and all the people in their neighbors and their neighborhoods clearing out and packing out from Guatemala to America. That they're now living in New York City and Columbus, Ohio and North Carolina. Successfully evading enforcement, cutting off their bracelets, the tracking bracelets. And they're, they're doing just fine here. Guess what? All their relatives are going to come. If conversely you make it clear that unless you have an individualized persecution, which is none of them, you will be turned away right away. Or you will at least be detained pending your claim and you will not be released. And then we make that clear to Latin America. I would I would run a multi-million dollar media campaign in Central America. Guess what? They'll stop coming. You won't even need the wall. So there's reports now that the super committee is now making this worse in two ways. Not just not funding the wall. Not just an incomplete pass an interception. Andrea Drush, she um, writes for National Journal. I've uh, I've done interviews with her before. She's interviewed me. Um, she reports from Representative David Price of North Carolina that Democrats plan to stop to defund Jeff Sessions-backed asylum rules in the DHS conference report. Think about that. Now, you might say, well, if it's in place, why do we even have a border invasion? Well, it's not really in place because of the stupid court injunction on it that the Trump administration is listening to. So that in itself is a problem. But the Democrats would permanently defund it and they report that Republicans on the committee agree. So this is actually this is North North Carolina paper, um, a Democratic proposal to reverse strict guidance on who can be granted asylum in the United States is a sticking point in ongoing congressional border security negotiations aimed at averting another government shutdown. Former Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued the guidance in June, saying that fears of domestic violence or gang violence could not be used as grounds for an asylum claim. Democrats led by North Carolina Representative David Price have made reversing that stance a key part of their negotiations with Republicans over a bipartisan border security bill. 
And she reports that leaders of the group said that they're steering clear of most major changes to immigration and asylum rules in hopes of crafting something that can garner support of both Republicans and Democrats. Price's proposal would not allow any Homeland Security funds to be used for any guidance that disqualifies most victims of gang violence and domestic violence from asylum eligibility. And guess what? According to Price, the Republicans... Wait, where is this? Let me just read it here. He's reporting that Republicans might agree to this. Now, before we get to whether Republicans wind up supporting this and whether Trump agrees to it and you know what's going on with that, I'm waiting for comment. And I'm just checking my email here because before I went live, I, I sent a request to DHS for comment on this story from Andrea, Andrea Drosh. But one thing we do see clear is the determination of Democrats. Remember when Republicans had control of both houses, not just the House, but the Senate, and Obama was president. And, and, and nobody would entertain using the DHS approves bill to block funding for the illegal amnesty or a number of Obama's immigration policies. Yet Republicans come in right away with just control of one body, and they're fully committed to defunding Trump's immigration policies. Again, the imbalance of power is ultimately what kills us. There's a Democrat party that represents the liberal point of view. There is no Republican party that represents our point of view. That's the story. So we're going to be watching that for next week. That's a big thing to watch headed into the new week. But I hate to tell you, it gets worse than that. So like we said, there's one thing to invite in. I'm just sending out an email here to invite in everyone. Okay, any anyone could come. Asylum is, you live in a garbage place, that's asylum. Anyone who wants to come. All right. Well, at least we're going to hold you so the American people don't have to deal with the public charge, the criminality, all the garbage that's coming into this country, being on the hook pending adjudication where 100% of them, not 90%, 100%. The reason why some of them get through is because we have very liberal immigration judges, not just the Article Three judges, but the DOJ judges. And that's a whole different story. It's a whole different discussion. But at least we're going to hold them. Nope. Something else is going on here. There's another rider that Democrats want to put in there. This is from the Washington Times. A briefer from ICE stood outside the closed-door meeting Wednesday while negotiations while negotiators working on a Homeland Security spending deal heard from border experts who made their pitch for a border wall. The ICE briefer never made it into the room, an administration official said. Right, So um, you know, Republicans never advocated that an official from ICE be allowed to give their case of what they need for funding of their agency. Okay, If he had been allowed to speak, he would have told them that the limits they're pondering to immigration detention proposed by Democrats would lead to 30,000 people being released back onto the streets, including thousands of migrants with criminal records. 
Even Senate Republicans, anti, would mean cuts to ICE's ability to hold all the illegal immigrants the agency says need to be detained if the government is going to begin to make a dent in the illegal immigration problem. While most of the public focus in the negotiations has been on President Trump's call for a border wall, the number of detention beds available to hold illegal immigrants is just as big of a sticking point and perhaps even more critical to achieving Mr. Trump's stated goal of cutting illegal immigration. ICE was disappointed not to be able to address the conference committee directly, the administration source told the Washington Times. Left outside the room, ICE has instead produced a briefing document for the negotiators. The document defends the president's call for 52,000 detention beds and says both Democrats' plan, cutting ICE to about 35,520 beds, and even Senate Republicans' proposal of about 40,520 beds would mean dangerous migrants would have to be set free. Up to 30,000 releases of criminals and illegal aliens with criminal charges and recent border crossers would not be held, I said. In some cases, ICE would even be forced to break the law to release migrants deemed subject to mandatory detention by Congress, the briefing says. Not only would that cut down on deterrence of illegal immigration, but it would mean fewer criminals would be ousted from American communities, ICE argued. So in other words... You have to remember, ICE really has two jobs. There's ICE that's in the interior of the country, and then there's ICE that works with Border Patrol at the border. So there's holding the people that newly crossed the border, pending you know their deportation, and then there's the rounding up of those that already got into our country, which, again, they're focusing mainly on the criminal illegal aliens. So it means that, A, you're not deterring a new flow, because they'll know they'll have to be they'll be able to come in and get released even without the policies, certainly aggravated by the policies, just because there's not enough beds. And then number two, that will grind to a halt, meaning let's say they're forced to prioritize and then hold more of the new migrants, then that shuts down their ability to deport anyone else. Because even an expedited deportation, they need at least a few nights to hold them in a facility. So if they don't have any beds, ICE internal enforcement is shut down. So again, deterring the flow with policies and interior enforcement, as you guys well know from listening to the show, are a much bigger deal than a freaking border wall or not even a border wall. What, what is it? They're negotiating between two and three billion dollars for however many miles of it. It keeps shrinking. This is the whole enchilada. So it's not just... What you guys need to watch out for next week is it's, it's not just that they're not going to fund the border wall. It's that we're actually going to go backwards and they're going to aggravate the policies of bogus asylum and catch and release worse than they already are. So th- this is this is really insane. Um I'll link to this article in show notes. They go on to talk about the fact that 30% of illegal immigrant parents caught and released with an ankle bracelet cut the bracelet off in the first days after being released. Um, this This is really, really bad news. So again, we're holding by the same point where we were at a couple weeks ago where the only thing that could come out of Congress, the only outcome is an incompletion or an interception. It's either getting nothing, no border wall, which is not even on the table anyway, a partial funding for a partial border wall, or making current policy worse when 
at its core, this is more of a policy problem than a border wall or border funding problem. So what does Trump need to do? He needs to go the executive route. But as I noted, he needs to do it in the proper way. It's not, oh, let's look like I'm a thief in the middle of the night because I can't get my border wall from Congress to twist the statute. And, and I, I agree he has that power. John Yu has a great article out at National Review. He's a respected legal establishment guy, unlike me, um, who says clearly Trump has the power to do that. But again, it doesn't it, politically, it's, it's, it's not going to look good. And anyway, it doesn't speak to the core issue anyway. What he needs to do is not just declare an emergency, but treat the border like an emergency, make it about an invasion, make it all about the cartels. Number one, designate the cartels as a terror group. Number two, announce that he is cutting off all nourishment for the cartels and announce that he is you know, stop listening to that stupid district court and not just in San Diego, but say we are processing everyone outside of the country. This is a national emergency. It's empowering the cartels. Immigration law doesn't even say that. And even if it did, national security would override that. Even if it did, Article 2 and 212F of the INA override the regular immigration, right? Because that's only if all things are equal. You have this sort of visa categories. Remember, 212F could shut off, gives the president the unilateral authority to shut off even legal immigrant visa categories. He needs to assert himself on that. And then he needs a beefed up military presence. Some of that includes, in my view, he needs to invoke Title 10. Not Title 32 32 status, but what's called Title 10 status of, of the National Guard which is Title 32 is when you do it under state control, the governor controls it. So in this case, in New Mexico, the governor is yanking them back. He needs to commandeer that and invoke it with Article 10, Title 10 power, which takes it away from the governor, nationalize the National Guard, beef up New Mexico more than anything, and then really start posturing the military aggressively towards the cartels. Then when you do all of that and, you know, all the messaging behind that, then if you want to build border wall with DOD reprogramming under a national emergency, it becomes a lot easier and it makes a lot more sense. That's the idea here. You know, just before I uh, <clears throat> I got on air here, I actually had a conversation with a guy who works for DOD coordinating National Guard operations at the border, just kind of internal affairs, and is, lives in New Mexico and is very familiar with what's going on there. And... By the way, thank you, Cynthia. You know who you are. One of our listeners actually hooked me up with the guy. So that, that that's what a great show this is and what a great audience you guys are. I actually learn from you. I actually often get information from you or in this case, a contact, which was terrific. So thank you, Cynthia, for that. Um, in New Mexico, he received a briefing from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
And it was the same briefing that Governor Grisham received and the, the intel she got on the severity of what is going on at the New Mexico border. And yet, and yet, she still says, I don't see any problem. First of all, the cartels now have a billion-dollar infrastructure around there in surveillance of every move of every soldier and border patrol. They now have trained drug dogs to do counter-counter narcotics, the same way you know, we have uh, uh, narcotics canine units. The cartels are buying land and colonizing land on our side of the border. Kids are being picked up by the schools, illegal alien kids from the border with a lot of cartel activity using them as drug smuggling. They, they see tons of drug smuggling on their surveillance. Between the points of entry, by the way. Then you have places like Gila National Forest, Lincoln National Forest, and these aren't right at the border. I mean, you're talking about what is it? Um, you know, often 80, 100 miles in, where park rangers are now terrified because they travel alone in their trucks. They've been held up by gunpoint by cartel smugglers until they were able to beg, beg them and convince, no, no, we're not trying to do anything. We just run the parks. Those that work for BLM. Can you imagine that? We spend $6 trillion overseas and have troops deployed all sorts of places to rebuild Kabul and Raqqa, social work, urban renewal projects. Shouldn't we wait until there is not one inch of American soil that is occupied by the most brutal people in the world before we go overseas and yet we refuse to recognize the severity of the problem and this piece of garbage governor refuses to deal with her own state sovereignty issue? And by the way, that's another thing Trump could do. DHS secretary, well, I guess BLM is under interior. But I think DHS secretary has the power to deputize, deputize anyone with a badge in federal service to do border work. So Trump needs to beef up the weapons and rules of engagement of the park rangers to deal with the drug traffickers in our national forests. That is that is one thing he you know no one's talking about, but that needs to be done. It is unbelievable the stuff that is going on on our own border. And and you know what the governor did? She is sending Hidalgo County, taking out the uh, the National Guard. She's sending them six state troopers, five thousand square miles, folks. We got to make it about a war on the cartels. All right, so we've gone long on this segment. I, I wanted to get to the courts today. What is it? It's always the courts and the cartels. Everything destroying our country is the courts and the cartels. And ironically, a big part of the cartels is the courts. Because again, the antecedent to all of our problems with illegal immigration and therefore all our problems 
with the mother's milk of cartel activity is court opinions. So I want you guys to listen very carefully because there's going to be a lot of nuance and a lot of subtlety here. And I want you to get the severity of the perfidy and betrayal of John Roberts. Okay? So you have all these people on our side. They're like, um, we, we need to appoint better judges. Everything is about appointing judges. You need Republicans to appoint judges. We have to overlook every other betrayal of Republicans because they elect judges. They, they nominate judges. And really, as you guys know, I've been yelling for three years, four years now, that a lot of these conservative judges aren't really conservative. They're part of the problem. And when push comes to shove, they believe in this certain legal political philosophy that they get gun shy and they wind up just going with the flow. And we're never going to get enough of them. We're never going to beat the Democrats in their own system of judicial supremacy. Rather than expending all this capital of nominating our people, so to speak, who aren't even our people, why don't we attack the source of the problem, which is judicial supremacy itself? It's funny. You know, notice how what we talk about here often is going to the source of the problem, just like we're doing on immigration, not the distraction. And I'm going to continue doing that in other issues because I'll tell you, usually even what other conservative media is talking about is a distraction. So you all saw in this case of the Louisiana abortion healthcare regulation, June Medical Services, LLC, VG, where Louisiana, like many states, a couple years ago, following the revelation of the Kermit Gosnell-run abortion clinics, where it was just appalling. You know, again, put aside even abortion. Just, you know, from a medical standpoint, you, you, you know, something that is that serious, it's a serious procedure, right? It's, it's a serious thing you're doing, going inside the womb. I mean, even if you want to desensitize murder, but just from a healthcare standpoint, we have a freaking federal government that is greenlit to regulate every aspect of healthcare. Nothing is out of bounds. Nothing is unconstitutional. I mean, they could do anything they want. They could regulate down to the minutia of what of the fiscal side, the funding side, what what a not not a healthcare provider, but an insurance company, what type of insurance plan they could cover. And we could do so at a federal level. Yet, when it comes to states who should have more latitude over regulating healthcare, they somehow are are stopped by the courts from putting basic safety health care regulations on abortion doctors, their qualifications, um, ambulatory uh, services, things like that. So a lot of states pass these Kermit Costnell laws to clamp down on these facilities, raise the qualifications of, of service, the standards of, of practice, the qualification of the doctors performing the abortions. So they passed a law saying that doctors in, that have these abortion clinics, they have to have active admitting rights in local hospitals within 30 miles. Pretty reasonable. This is the type of thing we do for other healthcare procedures that are on par with this. Okay? Now, a similar 
law was passed in Texas, among many other states. In the famous 2016 Hellerstadt case, Anthony Kennedy joined with the four other liberals to overturn the Fifth Circuit and say that, no, Texas couldn't do this. Among other things, it had this this law requiring admitting rights in hospitals. So again, you know, not only is there a right to an abortion, but we've elevated the phantom right to murder even over the unambiguous, unalienable rights that are unquestionably in the Constitution, where you can't even put common sense regulations on it. Not talking about barring abortion. Nothing to do with abortion. So what happened was, in this case, the district judge said, oh, well, it's just like Hellerstadt. I have to apply Hellerstadt. So they put an injunction on it. Fifth Circuit said no. Because, for once, the Fifth Circuit did what the left does and pushed back against the Supreme Court precedent by you know, saying that this case is different. In Texas, it worked out that these people weren't able to get admitting rights, so therefore it would kind of really limit access to abortion. Whereas in Louisiana, there is no – right now, there is no proof or evidence that these doctors can't just – that they wouldn't have those rights. And, and this is part of a whole separate issue that I always talk about with judicial supremacy is courts don't strike down things, even, even if you agree with their rulings. That's not what they do. That's not what a court, a court doesn't have veto power. It's not in the Constitution. There's no, there's no veto. A court grants relief to an ind- individual that is seeking a certain right, a certain action. So well, what is it you want to do? Well, I want um, to, per- to perform abortions. Okay, well, who's stopping you? Well, the state's stopping me. Well, how are they stopping you? Well, uh, they're saying you have to get rights. Well, okay, do you not have admitted admission rights? Who's preventing you? Come back to us if you're being prevented. It's called rightness. It has to be ripe. The case has to be ripe for action, meaning you have an actionable <clears throat> claim where I have a right to A, and A is being denied from me. But who says it is? So that was the whole issue in this case. That's how the Fifth Circuit said it's you know it's not a problem, and it's not you know even if you agree with Hellerstadt as controlling precedent from the Supreme Court, it's not a problem. So no injunction. So basically. Just, I'm trying to remember, I think it was last week, the abortion clinics petitioned for the Supreme Court to reverse the Fifth Circuit on the injunction level and issue an injunction. So as many of you have heard, last night, late last night, five to four, John Roberts, joining the four other liberals, issued an injunction, which is pretty much indefinite throughout the proceedings. It's probably going to take another year to get a ruling on this case. Probably not till next June. Oral arguments will probably be in the fall. So it's, you put, put an injunction on it. Like I said, there's a lot of subtlety here. I want you guys to understand why this case is worse than anything we've seen until now and why John Roberts' perfidy is worse than you think. 
So until now, one of the things that Roberts has been doing, as we've chronicled so often, is he, he does two things. Either he passively allows egregious lower court injunctions to stay in place on things that violate legal norms, violate rules of standing, violate longstanding Supreme Court precedent or recent Supreme Court precedent, often written by John Roberts himself or that he signed on to. So he just passively refuses to grant cert, often even when there's a circuit split. You know, like we saw this with um, public prayer. There's now a circuit split between the fourth and sixth circuit whether county officials could have open up their meetings with public prayer despite town of Greece v. Galloway, you know, the Supreme Court a couple years ago, written by Anthony Kennedy of all people, already said that, of course, it's okay. But that doesn't seem to matter. And, you know, Clarence Thomas called him out for not granting cert. But this is what Roberts has been doing. So either that or when he takes up the case, he writes it very narrowly. So it's like, you know, court, lower courts will say, okay, so we get to, uh, all illegals get to come in the country, rape anyone they want, steal your wealth, and whatever. So he'll walk back the lower court part on stealing the wealth. You know what I mean? Very narrow. So it, it doesn't cut the cancer out. So the spores keep shooting out and the lower courts keep coming out for more. That, that's basically what he's been doing until now. What is so perfidious about what he did last night is this is the opposite. Finally, we have a lower court doing the right thing and allowing a state law to stand and not issuing an injunction, and he parachutes in there with both arms and issues an injunction. Think about that. There's one thing you could say, yeah, he's being passive. He doesn't want to be too potent in any one direction. But somehow he has no problem getting involved when it comes to screwing us, doing the wrong thing. I want you to understand the profundity of this on several levels. On the issue, on his judicial temperament, on his hypocrisy, all of it. All of it. Think about this for a moment. You have lower courts saying that illegal aliens are citizens, that Arizona must issue driver's licenses, that Obama's violation of immigration law affirmatively granting benefits to illegals is the law of the land, and Trump cannot in that. In other words, Trump must continue actively violating immigration law. He cannot do anything less. And it goes on for over a year. And the Supreme Court denies expedited appeal. And as of now, still won't take even the regular appeal, even after the circuit court level action on it. And even after, and directly denied cert to Arizona. The amount of irreparable harm that has resulted from that. We, we've spoken about that before. The fact that Trump erroneously, in my view, feels that he must abide by that has cut out his entire political leverage over the issue of immigration. The fact that he refuses to get involved <clears throat> in all these lower court cases, encouraging catch and release the human tragedy, the humanitarian crisis on both sides of the border of what is caused singularly by these district judges because Roberts refuses to get involved. But yet when it comes to this, 
when you have a conservative lower court, the Fifth Circuit, just allowing the state to do what it wants, not declining to issue injunction, he is somehow worried about irreparable harm to three abortion doctors where there's no evidence that they'd necessarily be barred from doing anything, and the regulation hasn't even been written. See, some might say, yeah, you know, the case is close enough to Hellerstad, even, even though Roberts himself voted against Hellerstad, and maybe he's still open on the merits to overturning Hellerstad, but because this case is close enough, he wants to put an injunction on until they could hear the case. You know, all that garbage. But that, but, but that is indefensible because there's no harm where you need an injunction, whereas there is so much harm from these lower court injunctions violating President Trump's, when prima facie it violates Trump v. Hawaii. Similar thing. Roberts himself said that there are no limits on 212F and courts are putting limits on it, therefore spawning an invasion Cartel activity, you cannot quantify, you cannot quantify the cascading effects on our society, our schools, our hospital, our language, our security. Park rangers being held by gunpoint because of this. Thanks to these lower courts and John Roberts will not stay these injunctions. Think about that. You're not going to hear that point anywhere else. There's another level here that is even, even just as perfidious. Put it this way. Let's juxtapose what's happening on abortion to guns. As you all know, even a real constitutional right, not a BS right, Let's take the constitutional right that is most unambiguous and written into the Constitution with the strongest of terms. The right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Shall not be infringed. Yet, even Justice Scalia made very clear in Heller that, you know, it doesn't foreclose the power of a state to put any limitations or regulations or stipulations on, you know, carrying, owning, quote, this from Scalia and Heller, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons, mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. He quoted... He made it clear that, quote, commentators in courts routinely explain that the right was not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever or for whatever purpose. Right? And and that is an unambiguous right. Yet when it comes to abortion, it's not just that, okay, we said abortion is the Constitution. Roe, Casey, okay. But what the courts have been doing recently with cases like Hellerstein, that they're basically saying – what even Scalia wouldn't say about guns, where it's not only in the Constitution, but written as the right, the pre-existing right, predated the Second Amendment. It was a natural right. Shall not be infringed. He said it doesn't mean anyone whatsoever, any weapon whatsoever, in any manner, and for whatever purpose. Yet the courts are now saying you have the right to an abortion, 
the right to access any doctor, a doctor has any right to perform any abortion, a right to public funding whatsoever for whatever purpose, for whatever reason, for whatever manner. It could be the most gruesome manner. We can't restrict the manner. We can't put regulations on the qualification of the doctors. Heck, you have a right to get taxpayer funding for it. Medicaid funding for it. Right, That was the other case where Roberts and Kavanaugh, by the way, refused to lift the stay. Lower courts mandating a right to, for Planned Parenthood and other similar organizations to get Medicaid funding. Think about that for a moment. Yet, the lower courts are refusing to recognize, forget about some regulations, they're refusing to recognize any right to carry any weapon of any caliber of any person with any record in any place. That's where I sit right now in the state of Maryland. I cannot carry any handgun of any sort, any time, any place. Nine years after Heller. Lower courts repealed it. And yet time and again, Roberts has, clearly it's Roberts because you do process of, of elimination. It takes four votes to take it up and, and Thomas and, and Scalia before he died and Alito a couple of times warned that he's not, you know, that some of their colleagues are refusing to take it up. That means Roberts. So he refuses to take up an unalienable right that vi- and, and lower court opinions that shred Heller of an unambiguous right. Yet when it comes to parsimonious regulations of the phantom right to an abortion and lower courts putting injunctions on that, or, or, or no, lower courts, in this case, declining to put an injunction, he parachutes in to put an injunction. Checkmate, folks. Don't listen to any defense of Roberts. But what does this mean more broadly? What does this mean more broadly? Oh, and, and, and by the way, j- just so you know, this is happening. The courts right now, the lower courts are allowed to um, overturn Trump via Hawaii. Robert's own opinion on the travel ban. So it's not just, re- remember how we said, you know, the courts are violating the spirit of Trump via Hawaii, meaning it's not the exact case, but any other presidential restrictions on the flow of immigration they're refusing to recognize the dictum of Trump v. Hawaii that Roberts wrote that there's no recognizable um, limitations on 212F. It's worse than that. Now they're getting rid of even the, the, the base opinion. This is from court, <clears throat> courthousenews.com. This was from earlier in the week. A federal judge on Monday refused to dismiss a class action claim a class action claiming the Trump administration uses a sham travel ban waiver process to deny virtually all waiver eligible immigrants from five muslim majority countries entry into the united states 
quote, plaintiffs allege facts plausibly demonstrating that a de facto policy of blanket denials has usurped individualized waiver decisions, U.S. District Judge James Donato wrote in his 19-page ruling. Could you imagine that? John Roberts just said in Trump v. Hawaii that a president could, you know, he, he, he was right, even if he didn't have any waivers. And now a judge could say you're not issuing enough waivers and give foreign nationals from Iran, Libya, Somalia, Syria, and, and Yemen standing to sue. See how the courts are a one-way street and a dead end, a one-directional ratchet. It's like drinking coffee with a fork. All these people who thought, oh, you finally get it in. Oh, oh. No. Roberts is the new Kennedy. Not just like this backhanded allowing the lower court, but totally hypocritical, totally a leftist. Which brings me to my final point. Some of you might be wondering, all right, fine, Daniel, you're right. We, we, we fell short. We don't have five votes, but we have four. We have four. Wait until Ruth Bader Ginsburg goes by the wayside, and uh, then we'll finally get five. If you believe that, you're worse than Charlie Brown with the football. <clears throat> There's a reason this keeps happening to us, that every time we think we get a new one, we lose an old one. It's the same reason it's going to keep happening. And the signs are already there with Kavanaugh. Remember, Kavanaugh already screwed us on the global warming case and on the other abortion case. And by the way, there's an interesting observation I have on this case. So something funny happened here. Four judges dissented and said they would have they wouldn't have put on the injunction. Right? Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh. And so, you know, it's five to four. Now, Kavanaugh wrote a dissent, didn't just dissent, but wrote an actual opinion dissenting. But it was just signed by him. The others didn't sign. So now you would think, oh, wow, well, Kavanaugh is being hardcore. Like, he's the one yelping about, you know, he's the one dissenting here. That's, that's pretty good. No. Why do you think the others didn't dissent? This is pretty egregious, right? You would think Thomas would have, if you read what, Kavanaugh wrote it was what I mentioned before it was very technical he basically said this is not like Hellerstat because there's no re regulation written yet there's no evidence that they'd even be denied if you have the evidence then come back you know what he's doing just like Roberts has already become the new Kennedy guess who's going to be the new Roberts what I mean is like the backhanded passive narrow allowing the lower courts to do their thing, that's Kavanaugh. He's paving the road. See, I, my theory is the other justices just like straight up. I mean, they already voted against Hellerstadt. Now we supposedly have five votes against it. They're like, let's take it up and overturn it, much less put not put an injunction, a new injunction that doesn't exist based on the Fifth Circuit. Let's totally overturn Hellerstadt. To me, this is a sign that not only will Kavanaugh not overturn Roe and Casey, which I think is obvious, I have my doubts about Gorsuch, but he won't even categorically overturn Hellerstat. He'll split hairs. Well, okay, you could put these regulations on if they're not overly prohibiting and they could get easy access to 
um, you know, active uh, hospital privileges and admit, admitting pr- privileges. But if not, then then you can't do it. That's what he's paving the road to do, the hemming and hawing. That's my concern going forward. I'm telling you. And then Gorsuch will have his shtick on his issues. Alito will have his issues. We we lose every time. The answer is to invest our capital in finally doing the right thing, not legitimizing the wrong thing and raising the specter of the importance of the judiciary. Yes, yes, the courts are the final say, so much so that the most important thing is that we get our people on. No, say, you know what? Screw it, I don't care. They don't have this power, and I'm not going to accord them that power. Folks, nothing matters until the courts and the cartels are dealt with and the cartels are being fueled by the courts. That's essentially what's going on. But you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of lessons to learn from what just happened in this Louisiana abortion case, which at its heart is not really even an abortion case. It has nothing to do with abortion. It's healthcare regulation. It's just like with guns. No one would say like the the federal government is hard, is violating the Second Amendment by denying felons the right to own a gun or carrying a gun in a courthouse or owning a machine gun without a special license. Of course, there's even a real right. Right, you don't have the First Amendment right to spill classified state secrets. Everything has limitations, but abortion has no limitations. I mean, we're finding this trend all over the courts because everything is over politics and identity. Illegal immigration is sacred. Muslims are sacred. Homosexuality is sacred. Abortions are sacred. You don't even have the equal application of BS rights. They're better than other rights. I've said this before with, with immigration. So Legal immigrants don't have the First Amendment right to donate to a political campaign. You got to be an American citizen according to law. Legal immigrants don't have an affirmative guaranteed right to the Second Amendment. But we are told by the courts now, and and the Supreme Court refused to categorically slap it down. They did the most narrow reversal they could just in one case. We are told that illegal immigrants could break into our country and they have a right not just to abortion, but to be driven directly by HHS to an abortion clinic. This is what 50 years of fighting for better conservative judges has gotten us, and it's got to stop. The courts and the cartels is all that matters. Anyway, thankful to be back. A lot more going on next week. We're going to have more guests. Let me know what you want to discuss. Email me at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. We're really going to focus a lot on New Mexico and how the state is overrun by an invasion. Really, really, it's all 50 states are overrun because the cartels have operational control anywhere they want. It could be well away from the border, but we're going to discuss again the messaging policy and strategy that both speaks to the truth of what's going on and what needs to be done, but also politically the best thing for Trump to do as this critical week and deadline approaches next week. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conscience.